You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In Toledot, we have something that we saw a couple weeks back with Avraham. We see a famine in the land. And um, as was the case with Avraham, Yitzchak assumes that he should go down to Egypt. Now, this is fascinating in light of current events, given that Israel is giving $5 million of wheat to a country that is experiencing uh, food problems, food shortages, not Egypt, but uh, not too far from Egypt, on bordering Egypt uh, and on the Nile Valley, the country of Sudan. Now, it's fascinating that Israel can do this. Uh, however, it's interesting that it's not actually a reflection of um, food supplies in Israel. Israel, it does very well for its conditions. Given that it's an arid country, there's limited land that's available for agriculture. Um, as a result, what an interesting fact is that Israel uh, actually imports 90% of its grain. Um, the grain deal with Sudan is more of a PR gimmick. I, gimmick is perhaps too strong a word. Um, there's uh, certainly every reason for Israel to uh, take its own wheat or some of the imported wheat and give it to Sudan. Certainly Israel can afford to do that in view of the larger economic picture that Israel is a, a wealthy country at this point, um, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, relatively speaking. I think we're up to uh, 19th position uh, in the world in terms of GDP, gross domestic product. It, be that as it may, it, it's fascinating that Israel is in a situation where famine is not only not an issue, but is something that we can help other countries with. Get, granted, in the case of grain, which is the a staple crop for, for, for many nations in terms of what people eat the most of. Granted, in terms of grain, Israel is far from self-sufficient. Um, however, Israel is producing all sorts of other uh, fruits and vegetables that it not only is self-sufficient in, but exports to the world. So could we live on a diet of avocados and dates? I'm not so sure. Those are two of the uh, big export crops that Israel produces and gives and, and sells to, uh, to to many countries in the world. Nonetheless, the situation is has changed, um, and it's 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 a change that has become almost institutionalized with scientific advancements in uh, agriculture. And even more importantly, um, the procurement of fresh water, which Israel has uh, developed in the last few years, such 
to the point that we're very little dependent upon rainwater. Obviously, um, or I assume that if the, the rains were completely to stop, then we would perhaps be in uh, difficult situations. Be that as it may, uh, this land of agricultural plenty stands in marked contrast with this week's Parsha, where Yitzchak faces a famine, also in marked contrast with uh, Avram's situation where he goes to Egypt. Now, Yitzchak, and I speak about this in my essay on this week's Parsha, Redeeming Relevance, you know how to get it by now. Um, I speak about the fact that Yitzchak was not allowed to go down to Egypt, and I discuss some of the explanations as to why not. Um, however, the thing to do in those days, and we see it not only from Avraham and Yitzchak, we're going to see it again with Yaakov and his family, another famine is going to hit. And again, the place to go is Egypt. Now, Egypt is a land always that has been in contrast to other neighboring countries because of the Nile River, this tremendous source of fresh water um, that provides a, a, a great deal of arable land for that country. And traditionally, uh, meaning in, in ancient times, Egypt was uh, at a tremendous advantage as a result of this topographical fortune that it had. And uh, the, the great wealth of Egypt that we know from the mummies and the pyramids and, and so on and so forth, uh, and Egyptian culture in general, ancient Egyptian culture, has much to do with the good fortune of having the Nile River. Now, if you want to read more about what Egypt means in the Bible um, and its contrast to the land of Israel. So I recommend you looking into one of my books, the book that I have on Sefer Shemot, Redeeming Relevance in the book of Exodus, the first chapter. Uh, you'll see all the contrast that the Torah makes between Israel and specifically Egypt. Over there, I note as an aside that Egypt is mentioned almost 700 times in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible. And that is not, uh, there's no competition. The, the next country, besides Israel, of course, which is mentioned more for obvious reasons, but besides Egypt, the next uh, competitor is Babylonia with about 250 mentions. So you're dealing with uh, a... a situation where Egypt is mentioned uh, almost three times as much as its next competitor. The Tanakh is very interested in Egypt, not just because it's our neighbor, because there are other neighbors uh, that are mentioned much less, but partly because of the great wealth that comes from its dependable uh, water situation. And the result is actually uh, perhaps unintuitively, a moral decline and decadence that the Bible speaks about as a, as a, situa as a standard situation in Egypt. Um, Israel, meaning the land of Israel, by contrast, 
is a land which the Torah uh, describes as uh, a land that requires God, or rather that God um, that God is involved with it. The, the verse in Dvarim speaks about it after comparing it and really contrasting it with Egypt and saying it's not like Egypt. It says that Israel is a land, I'll quote the, the pasuk in the verse in Hebrew, we're looking at uh, Deuteronomy 11, 12, chapter 11, verse 12. The key part of that verse is that God's eyes are upon the land of Israel from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. God is involved with it. Whether for good or for bad, God is interested in the land of Israel, and the land of Israel, obviously, uh, so to speak, is very interested in God's help. Uh, we see from the stories in the book of Genesis, in the book of Reshit, what can happen when God is not helping. The, the, being an arid land, being without something like the Nile River, granted there's some small rivers in Israel, but nothing, uh, nothing uh, that compares at all to the tremendously uh, broad and long Nile River. Um, in that situation, Israel is always turning its face, its gaze, just like God's gaze is on Israel, Israel's gaze uh, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year is on God. So that is the situation the Torah presents us with. Israel is a land that that is not naturally uh, fertile. That it's not 100% correct. It's fertile, but it is not naturally well uh, watered. And as a result, uh, it has good ears and it has bad ears. Um, that changes when the Jewish people come to the land and behave the way they're supposed to. Um, and many have noted that this is what's happened in modern times when the Jews have come back to the land, uh, the land has bloomed and blossomed. And uh, certainly it's a rather surprising tale of agricultural bounty in the modern world. And we, people, uh, Jews of faith, understand that this is not simply a coincidence, but this is very much part of God's involvement with the land of Israel. I just want to point out one thing which I expand on in this week's article on uh, redeeming relevance in the Parsha, and that is the position of the Malbim. Malbim being uh, another great commentator of the uh, 1900, excuse me, of the 1800s. Uh, he lived in Germany, in uh, Romania, is originally from further east, uh, I believe in Russia. And he was a master of many areas, not only of Jewish knowledge, but also of secular knowledge. In any case, the Malbim suggests that the land of Israel did not respond to the behavior of people until 
Avraham was given it. Meaning when Avraham first got there, the land was still left up to natural circumstances. And therefore, Avraham had no choice but to go down to Egypt. The Malbim says that once Avram came back from Egypt and possessed the land, things changed, and that is his explanation as to why Yitzhak did not have to go to Egypt because the land would respond to him. There's much to speak about that and other explanations. But the point that I wanted to make just now is that according to this approach, we see that the land of Israel has to be turned on. Right, that before Avraham acquired the land, the land may have been potentially uh, spiritual, and is the potential of this spiritually uh, responsive trait of adjusting its produce, its conditions, and so on, uh, based on the people's behavior who are living on it. That's something that was only potential says the Malbim, and not in actuality. So that would mean that God can switch the spirituality on when the right people are on it. It also means that God can switch that spirituality off when the people are not on it. Presumably that's what happened for the centuries that the Jews were in exile. But it also can be turned off when the people that are meant to be there aren't behaving as they should. The truth is that whether you take this approach or whether you take the the more standard approach, that there's no turning off the land. The land is always spiritual by nature and always responds to its inhabitants. Uh, Even so, if the inhabitants behave poorly, Even if the land is switched on, that doesn't mean that things will go well. It's important to realize this, uh, those of us especially who are living in Israel, but the Jewish world at large, that this great wealth that we have, whether it's in grain, and as I said, it's not really in grain, but the, the wealth and prosperity And the blossoming of the land of Israel is not something that we can take for granted. And it's not something that we can simply attribute to technology, science, and hard work. That all of these things are ultimately in the hands of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of God. So I'm going to leave you with that thought for... Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.